Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome again, Brendan here with MarkVetGurus.com, episode 219, Friday, December <laughs> you, the 10th. Week after week, you're, you're dreaming of the fans. Week after, yes, week after week. Ah, another week, Mark, another week closer to the holiday season, um, another week of work, another week of COVID in the world. Um what uplifting news can you tell me, Mark? What uplifting news? Um, I, I, I was telling you the story, because we're talking about uh, uh, birds in rookeries, I was telling you the story about um, the red-tailed tropic bird that was nesting outside one of the, the residences that we stayed at while Kate and I were on holidays. Um, and she was, I, she had a tag. She had a big chick. They, they are chunky babies. And, yes. uh and um, she had a tag on her leg, and um, so I did a bit of research and found out that she was 28 years old um, and was tagged on uh, the island, um, yeah, as a as a young bird when they first started, when the the island was revegetated and the tropic birds started to come back. Um, so that was it. Was pretty nice seeing an uh, an aged bird uh, having such a healthy chick. Brendan, um, and they're pretty spectacular, those red tropic birds. That was uplifting. Was there any indication that it was an older bird at all? Or did it seem like it was getting round normally, or did it look a little bit stiff and arthritic? Or no, no, it looked, it, it, yeah. it looked, it looked un- indistinguishable from the younger birds thereabouts. They are funny birds because they are very elegant in the sky with their red streamer you know, the long feather on the back of them. Um, yeah. But on the land, they, um, they're they clumsy. They can't – it's too heavy to bear weight on their pathetic little hind legs and their legs are situated way back, you know, too far to, to – they'd have to stand like a penguin and they're just too heavy. Um, so they just – on land, they whether they're arthritic or not, they just flop around like useless – um, waiting for a bit of breeze to catch their wings and get them off the ground. So, so no, she, but she looked good. She did. I wouldn't have picked her as an aged bird. I spent a lot of time sitting around waiting for a, a breath of wind to lift me off the ground, Mark, <laughs> and I'm still waiting. <laughs> one day, one day, um, who knows? Yes. Um, now, that's a good segue into your story, Mark. Talk talk about your news story you have for us this week. Ah, my, well, it is a, about birds in rookeries. It's a study that looks at albatrosses on the Falkland Islands and um, and the albatrosses, the black-browed albatrosses uh, that we're speaking about particularly, but the whole group of albatrosses are well known for their monogamous behaviour. They're, they're hugely... Um, uh, uh, birds filled with fidelity. Over ninety percent of all bird species are monogamous, and uh, and our albatross most famously uh, rarely separates, sticking with the same breeding partner 
year after year, decade after decade, in fact. But an interesting phenomenon has been observed that, um, in general, in stressful times, the birds... uh, Divorce rate increases. Um, you know, they separate, and uh, particularly the female birds will move on to look for a male that might supply them with maybe better fish, better squid. Um, but another phenomenon has been noticed more recently in that um, when the temperature of the water rises, um, as the ocean waters are warmer, um, more of the birds split up. Um, and this effect is well quite pronounced that um, the typically less than 4% of the pairs will split each year, but this rose to nearly 8% in the colony of black-browed albatrosses on the Falkland Islands um, in the years where the temperature rose in the ocean. Um, and, of course, this has, uh, you know, uh, suggests that as climate change changes the temperature of the oceans that um, there may be inadvertent consequences as there always is in these things things that we don't realize are going to happen um, and maybe this will uh, will have an effect on the success of the birds in the wild it's interesting that the scientists suggest that this may be a, a compensatory mechanism gone awry that um, that you know obviously if it's a bad year um, it's probably a good thing for a female albatross to look for a fitter healthier male and increase her breeding success um, but the change in temperature of the ocean and the trigger that that leads to for them to look for new partners may not actually result in um, improved breeding success. It may be a uh, uh, you know an, an excessive response to uh, a, a misreading of cues um, and uh, leading to behaviour that actually lowers their breeding success. Um, yeah, really interesting stuff about uh, um, inadvertent you know unexpected. Uh, consequences from the things that we do that change the temperature of the world. Mm. And the other good news there is, Mark, your good wife, Kate, will probably stick with you, um, even though there's an excess of cues um, that she's noticed um, (laughs) during global warming. Um, It's good news. It's good news. Um, They they are magnificent birds, aren't they? Um, I must admit, those albatrosses, they are are magnificent. I've got another quick news story this week, Mark, and it's just that the report last month in November that three beloved snow leopards died of COVID-19 complications at the Nebraska Zoo. And the interesting part of this was the... um, now the the range of species now or animals at at, at zoos that um, have been tested have been found positive for for COVID and um, also dying um, is increasing their mark. Um, and despite efforts to restore them to health, they tested positive for uh, in October or so, and they um, have died. The three snow leopards, which were named Rani, Everest, and Makula. Um, were beloved by the entire community, but they weren't the only animals to have contracted the virus at the facility. They also had some Sumatran tigers had tested positive as well. Um, and the other thing I found interesting, they collected nasal swabs, mark, and faecal samples, so that would be a bit of a challenge from them. So you'd hope, hope that they'd um, spent some several months or, or years doing um, conditioning, Mark, um, to get them used to shoving um 
shoving those little swabs up the nose, and uh, I'm sure you've had. Have you have you been indeed COVID I, tested? Indeed, I have, yeah. and, um, and I definitely it is, it is a bit. Yeah, invasive. it is. A, I think it depends on who who does the swab, obviously, because I, I think some of the people are a little bit more um, aggressive. <laughs> it's my 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 um, way of putting it um, than others when they do the swab off here. Yeah, and same I with definitely got back. the impression that um, the the person who did my first test was instructed to tickle the pituitary. <laughs> <laughs> they, they slid it in quite a long way, and and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have the armament to respond in the way tigers, African lions, snow leopards, and jaguars might if someone stuck something up their nose. But I definitely felt like lashing out with claws and asking them to cease rubbing the underside yes. of my brain. Yes, it's um, yeah. The trials, the things we have to put up with to to keep safe, Mark. Yes. So other, that's my news story. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I was going to quickly mention in that news story is that yes. um, uh, the the Zoetis has an experimental uh, vaccine for the cats. Um, that uh, is, am I reading that correctly? Uh, this summer, um, zoo animals started receiving an experimental COVID vaccine. Oh, oh you there? Hell over. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting very excited there, Mark. I was. Oh, I was really excited. Made by, made by Zoetis, a yes. pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. So we will see what happens there. Um, and um, what do you think the chances are that they'll eventually introduce um, the vaccine more widely in, in, the, in the pet population, Mark, or do you think it'll just be just be used in zoo situations yeah i think i I don't think it will be um introduced more widely at this stage that's my tip good um now going back one step you said uh, i think you did have a bit of a a review before we um we've been very punchy this week before we talk about our our main topic this week mark what do you have for us um i wanted to talk about um the uh van gogh live um uh, uh, exhibition. Um, Kate and I went and uh, uh, um, and uh, did the Van Gogh live um, show, um, which was was awesome, Brendan. I, I um, I've got to say though that I had a little bit of I I'm in two minds about it. I really really enjoyed it. Um, it's a it's a um, um, you know, one of those multimedia things where for about 45 minutes uh, there's um, uh, uh, something like 25 screens arranged um, in a, a, a two sort of rooms that you stand in and you can see all the screens and they have a variety of images. They they chart the the 10-year creative uh, lifespan of Van Gogh and... Um, and look at the various phases he went through and the reasons for them. They uh, put up some of the the letters he wrote, um, and uh, and in the background they play classical music from that time, um, and obviously the the presentations of the artwork are synchronised with the music. There's they even had a little puff of various odours to try and. Uh, further flavoured the mood of each of the phases of his artwork. Um, some of the the 
projected images were animated so that um, they added a level of movement to some of the pictures or some of the circumstances of the paintings. Um, and it was great. It was very stimulating. But, but I did feel ambivalent about it because I said to Kate, I think I could stand in a white room with no puffed-in odours, no... Um, uh, hypersaturated images, no animations, no um, music, just with one of his paintings for hours on end and study it and learn from the texture and the emotion and, and, uh, and enjoy it for a long time. And the presentation was like um, overdose. It was too much. It was you know, overdose of sensation, um, and and I don't, and that's good that it introduces um, that art to a cohort of people who are accustomed to that um, visual uh, sort of video hyper yeah, yeah hyper reality. Um, but I also felt like it um, just I don't know took a little bit away from the essence of his art. So I felt two things at once, Brendan. I enjoyed it immensely. And uh, and um, as old fogies do, look back to a simpler time when you didn't need um, um, multimedia presentations to absolutely enjoy classic art. And you stand in front of the painting and you look at it. <laughs> yes. Still was yes. good. I'll give it 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10. Whew. Despite your reservations there, yes. Um, and we did talk off air a little bit about there's a similar sort of production going on here in Melbourne that uh, I'm thinking of going to. So if I do, I'll, I'll report back, Mark. We'll I will be very keen. Report back. Very yes. keen to hear your perceptions. I will try not to get visually overwhelmed, Mark, when I see it. So let's jump into our main topic. This is a follow-up of episode 214, uh, which was extraction of incisor teeth of rabbits. And this one is the next logical progression of that, and that is cheek teeth or the premolar and molar removal in rabbits. And we're going to contrast, as I talk about in exams, Mark, contrast and compare. Remember you used to have the exam questions that, that said that. Oh, you're um, giving me nightmare flashbacks. 30-minute essay, compast and, contra com compast and compare cheek teeth removal with incisor teeth removal in rabbits. But this week we'll just talk about the actual cheek teeth removal, Mark, so, and the difficulties therein of doing that. So as we spoke about in the previous episode, episode 214, there are times when we need to remove those cheek teeth, aren't there, aren't there Mark, in, in rabbits quite frequently if you're seeing lots of rabbits in your practice and I think it's a completely different kettle of fish isn't it Mark removing the cheek teeth in rabbits compared with incisors and we spoke about how incisor removal in rabbits is you can get away with without the specialized equipment and the incisor luxators that are specifically made for it whereas removing the cheek teeth you really haven't got a choice, unfortunately. You need the equipment, you need the, the cheek teeth luxators, those special little instruments that have that sort of right angle on it so you can get into that back of the mouth of that rabbit to help break down um, the, the quadrants of the 
tooth um, to remove it. And those quite useful extraction forceps, Mark, those little pair of pliers, basically, that have that little right angle as well that um, enable you to remove them. Because I think without that gear, you'd really struggle to remove those teeth. Do you agree? And I think that's doing the compare and contrast thing. Um, I think it is absolutely, as you say, that... uh, um, there are a number of ways to do the incisors, but um, you need the right gear to get in. Uh, you need appropriate um, uh, vision. You need to be able to see what you're doing and so the, the appropriate dilators and whatnot to, um, to get in there. And then you need the, um, the appropriate luxators. You just can't get the correct angle in there um, unless you've got the specific tools to get in there. Yep. So we won't talk about the whole ATO pathogenesis of it, which we'd spoken about previously. We're just going to talk about the actual technique of removing it, and we'll simplify it. So um, stating, hey, we've got we have one cheek teeth that um, is abnormal or loose. How do we go about removing that? And um, we obviously have the rabbit anaesthetized, and um, these days I I certainly try and remember to, to make sure that I do a, a, um, a local anaesthetic block um, in the rabbit as well and they're, they're quite easy to, to perform and um, I think quite effective with using a, a small small amount of um, lignocaine or lidocaine in the mark um, and there's a fantastic article which has some great diagrams. I think it was originally written by Angela Lennox um, that's fairly readily available on the internets um, to, to see and it has a great little diagram and um, of where the little foramen are in and the landmarks for providing the little local anaesthetic blocks that I think greatly help um, the rabbit with its recovery um, because it doesn't feel as painful um, once we put that local anaesthetic block in so I put a local anaesthetic block in there and I will always try and remove that tooth from an intraoral approach um, and if we're lucky enough that that tooth can be removed that way that's certainly the way that we'll go and if we can't do that then we're attacking it from another direction which you can chat about shortly Mark with it. Um, so the method of, of removing those cheek teeth with these um, luxators are, are to gently break down each of the four quadrants and, and those um, specific instruments, which most of the vets who use them um, purchase them from the IM3 range, but they're not the only company that produce them, but they're, they're certainly ex- excellent um, products there. Um, and you break down the four quadrants there of that tooth, so you, you just place in that that little luxator um, laterally and medially and, and rostrally and caudally um in front and beside the tooth and and to the two sides of the tooth and the back of the tooth to break down the periodontal and the soft tissue um and it's like what we mentioned with the incisor luxation it's it's taking your time um it's trying not to pull the teeth out you're almost trying to push the tooth out um and once you've you've broken down um that ligament there and, and you've created that space between the tooth and the socket there um, it's only then that you should be reaching for the the forceps and just gently having a little bit of a wriggle of that tooth and see if it has become freed up and if it hasn't you can you can use that 
that um, um, to to put a bit of torsional force, I think, is what you ch- talk about, didn't you, last time, Mark, of, of, and gently holding that that force in each sort of direction, um, and slowly helping break it, break it down there, and eventually, if everything goes to plan. Um, you sort of feel when it gives, don't you, Mark, these teeth, and, and then you think, gee, I've got it, and um, making sure that when you do extract the tooth that you're um, pulling it out on a, on a little bit of a curve if it if it's one of the teeth, for instance, at the front of the, the mouth, that it has a bit more of a curve on it um, as you extract it. And the good news is if, if you have managed to remove that cheek teeth correctly, um, you will see the, the base of that tooth root that, and the pulp is, is what I tend to call it um, there. But the bad news is um, we're more often than not dealing with diseased teeth. That's why we're extracting them. And we, they may, it may have even already have broken off um, and you're, you know that you're only removing a portion of it initially and then you might have to consider doing the other approaches to try and remove the root of that tooth as well. Um, that's a bit of a long little mono- monologue there, Mark. Um, do, do, do you want to add to that um, before we talk about the, the <laughs> methods or the approaches from the other directions to remove the tooth if you can't remove it from the intraoral approach? Um, there, uh, there was only a cut. As usual, a comprehensive explanation. The... Um, Impacting the tooth, I find to be a really uh, a useful sort of concept in my mind that before I'm trying to yank it out or even apply, um, you know, two or three degrees of torsional force, I want to drive the tooth into the socket. And those uh, um, uh, tooth uh, um, holding forceps, the, slight, the specially designed one for rodent cheek teeth, they are uh, they are perfect for this purpose. Um, and, of course, the, the fibres of the periodontal ligament are much shorter um, uh, in that direction. They're, they're designed to resist um, pulling but not designed to resist impaction. And so once you've loosened them up a little bit and then drive the tooth into the socket, um, that will definitely help loosen them up. Um, and and I just would highlight what you said, that um, keeping in mind the three-dimensional arrangement of the teeth so that um, you're pulling, um, you know, in that slightly curved fraction for the more rostral um, teeth so that um, uh, you're, you're pulling them out of the socket rather than through the bone adjacent to the socket also makes it a little bit easier. Um, I'm, I'm, I, do I'm, you do you it, well, while I remember, Mark? Do you do you do anything with that socket? Assuming you've removed that, do you pack that with anything or not? No, um, I, I would generally flush it. Um, well, and I've used a variety of things to uh, flush the socket, um, but I'm I am cautious about uh, leaving anything um, in there. Um, I I have worried at times about the amount of blood that comes out of some of those sockets, um, but um, I I have not had the situation where I need to pack them or put anything in them. Um, we just generally uh, uh, leave them. Um, it's, I find it very difficult to, you know, in a dog or a cat, we would undermine some of the gingiva, um, um, mobilise it and sew it over those sockets to prevent um, 
uh, ongoing pain or uh, impaction of food into the socket. But that's not something I would be routinely doing to my rabbits. Yes. Well, same with me, although at, at certain different times I've played around with, you know, some of the sort of the dental fillers, etc., um, to, to just cover that dead space. But I've never, I've always gone back to basically leaving it like you have, um, although I'm sure there's some some people who do um, place something in there. Um, yes. So what? So what you, do you want to talk about the approach to say we can't remove it from an intraoral approach it looks like it's about to break or or it does break and you're left with a, a section of that that tooth or the tooth root there mark what what do we do well we use an extra oral approach and there really is um, i suppose um just two varieties um the most common one uh, is um that most of these teeth that we can't get intraorally because they're fragile because there's a fragment left they're going to be associated with apical abscesses and so exploring that apical abscess um, uh, via an incision um, whether it's uh, you know um, on the mandible on the maxilla um, we're going to explore that uh, infected bone and come to the tooth root from the marsupialized wound um, and be able to literally, you know, sometimes the tooth is just sitting in a, once you've removed the uh, pus and devitalized bone, um, you can literally just you know, grab the tooth root and pull it through that socket um, or uh, push it out through that, um, that uh, um, cavity. I have a couple of times uh, used a, um, an incision over particularly those caudalmost, the, the fourth and fifth one. Um, I might make an incision right through the, the skin um, and the space. I don't I'm trying to describe the anatomy, just the the, the um, buccal gingiva um, and create a fistula to the mouth, gain access with the tooth right in the middle of the incision and play with it directly rather than through the oral approach. Um, but I, I do that far less these days um, now that I'm more confident with the, the tools. I think the instruments make that intraoral approach the favoured one in my experience. Yes, yes. I think one of the tips if you end up having to go extra oral approach for them is to be bold um, and, and try not to be tentative with you need to really get in there and attack it and hack it. <laughs> and um, you do find, I do find the bolder I am with those ones, they, they too tend to come out cleaner and quicker and, and less traumatic um, than if you're sort of trying to do minimum damage um, as you're initially going in there. I know it's counterintuitive, but uh, I think it's true that you you need to just be, get in there, Mark, is my, my, um, my recommendation for those. I think that's good advice, Brendan. I do think, um, I know my personal technique, because I'm such a weenie with these things and I tend to take it slow and steady, that it makes those ones a little bit worse. Um, and I do think a little bit of, um, once you get to that point and you realise that you've got to adopt an extra oral approach, um, uh, 
you will underestimate the extent of damaged bone and and the amount of pus. So get in and get that out, um, and approach the the uh, the tooth reasonably, you know, more at the most aggressive level that you're comfortable doing. The one other tip I would um, I would just add to that mix is that I have had a couple of times where I'm trying to extract the the uh, most caudal of the um, the uh, mandibular teeth, um, and much like cats, it's possible to lacerate the the um, uh, I forget the name of the artery that comes out, and you can end up with a mouth the little problems. bugger. Yeah, yeah that's, 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 that's the cut one. the little bugger. Um, and funny you're going to talk about that. Sorry for interrupting you again. Okay. Um, I was I was thinking we need to chat about hitting the little vessel. Yes, so <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So how um, do we deal with that when we cut the little bugger? Well, you say lots of swear words, um, but um, uh, I would encourage people that if you that my technique for dealing with that um, is uh, apply pressure. Um, get get yourself a decent swab on a pair of um, uh, mosquito hemostats and apply pressure. And generally speaking, it takes a little bit long, like it's going to take five, six, seven minutes um, before the hemorrhage will cease. But my experience each time I have done it is that the bleeding stops. I abort the procedure at that point, allow the circulatory system and the, the clotting to settle that laceration down and return to the procedure a day or two later. Yes, you need to take a breath, take some time, put some pressure on there and... Um, I have a bit of a chat to the vet nurse, you know, what the weather's <laughs> like. And, uh, yes, it is it is a bit scary, isn't it? Well, it is scary every time you do it. Um, yeah. But I think the importance there is not to try not to panic and um, some pressure on there. And the good news is a, a large percentage of them, um, not all of them, but a very large percentage of them, it will settle down and all will be good in the mouth, Mark. Um and yes, you can either then delay the rest of the procedure, or, or if it did settle down and you'd, you'd just about got removed the tooth, then then um, good news, or you continue removing it if uh, it's safe to do so. Um, and finally, the only other comment I'd like to make about extracting the, the cheek teeth is, as usual, um, pain relief, Mark, um, especially if we are going for those extra oral techniques and we're cutting aggressively and we're attacking the soft tissue and the bone um, surrounding that tooth um, we need to be very cognizant of filling that animal full of the pain relief at the usual um, as we talk about multimodal analgesia with these cases and i just, just during the surgery but post-operatively as well and i would just um reiterate your comments i re-emphasize the the usefulness of um of uh, regional local anesthetic those uh, um, nerve blocks in the mouth they make a huge difference to the rate of recovery the rate at which the rabbit will return to normal consumption of food in my experience there's a clear difference um, between the rabbits that have got an appropriate nerve block and the ones that haven't um, and it might be um, a couple of days difference um, in the rate at which they return to eating normally. So uh, yes. it's, it, they're not complicated. Um, they work very effectively. Um, I generally just use lignocaine. I don't uh, muck around with bupivacaine and try and make up those mixes. 
um, and it does make a big difference. I agree wholeheartedly, as usual, Mark. And I think with that, uh, we will get out of here and uh, go to vetgurus.com and also look up that, that article, I think it was by the US vet Angela Lennox um, in exotic DVM originally, perhaps, um, but um, look up for local anaesthetic blocks in, in rabbits for dental procedures and you should be able to find those fantastic diagrams. And with that, we're out of here again. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.